Romans chapter 2, I'm going to read from the first verse. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, Then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature things required by the law... They're a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew... If you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing... Do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. 
Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. A long section to read, but it's really important to get the whole picture and to stop uh, anywhere short of that would, uh, would not enable us really to follow the themes through. What we've seen so far in Romans, what I hope we've seen so far in Romans, Paul expresses his great confidence in the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says in chapter 1, verse 16. It's God's power for the salvation of everyone who believes. He expresses his confidence in the gospel, and then he also speaks about something of the content of this gospel, which is why he is so thrilled with it. It's why he is delighted with this gospel, and he wants everyone to hear it. He says, uh, I, I, it, it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you at Rome. He loves this gospel. He loves preaching it, and he's outlining something of its content. But here in chapter 2, the chapter begins with several references to this word, judgment. Verse 1, he speaks about passing judgment. Verse 2, we know that God's judgment is against those who do such things. He says, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? And so on. Um, Many references there to God's judgment. And the question really that arises here is, to whom does that apply How does it work? And more particularly, what what about those who have never heard God's word, who have no idea about the revelation that is in this book? What about them? How will they be judged? What about those who devoutly follow some other faith? What happens? What's the basis of judgment? References to God's judgment... What is it? How does it work? How does it apply? Well, they're the questions that Paul is dealing with here, and they're the questions that I want us to look at this morning. First of all, he makes it very clear, the basis, the, the basis of judgment, the ultimate basis by which everyone is judged. And he says in verse 6, God will give to each person according to what he has done. That's the basis of judgment. We are judged according to what we have done. We're judged on our actions, judged on our words, judged on our intentions. It's things that we have done. That's always been the case from beginning to end. Paul there is quoting when he says that, Psalm 62. It's there in the Old Testament. It's there in the New. The basis of judgment is what we have done. In verse 16, he adds to it a little bit. And he says, God will judge men's secrets. So God is going to judge what we've done, and he's going to judge according to what he knows, even if no one else knows about it. Our secrets will be exposed on that dreadful day, and judgment will be on what we have done. It's a bit like... I'm told, I don't really know about these things, but it's a bit like the hard drive of a computer. You know, you can erase all kinds of stuff that you've got on your computer, particularly stuff that you've 
checked out on the internet. Maybe you've looked at some stuff you shouldn't have looked at. You erase that, but it's all logged there somewhere, so I'm told. No, there's nothing you can actually keep secret. It's all there. And when we come before God, it's like the hard drive is going to be examined. Everything comes out, every, every secret, all that we have done. It's not about what you haven't done. It's not about what you never had a chance to do. It's not about what you believe. It's about what we do. It's our actions. Verse 13, it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law. It's about what we do. And for that reason, judgment is absolutely just and absolutely fair. It's not about what we never knew. It's not about what we never did. It's not about what we never had a chance to do. It's about what we did. They're the actions that will be judged on that dreadful day. It is, Paul says in verse 2, based on truth. It's according to truth. It's the things that we have done. And hence, there'll be no right of appeal because there'll be no need for appeal. There'll be no complaints on that day. No one will be saying, it's not fair. It's what we have done. Indeed, in chapter 3, verse 19, it says, it's so that every mouth may be silenced. Yeah, there'll be no, no protests on that day. No one's saying, I didn't do that. No, it's the truth. The truth comes out, undeniable, unavoidable, what we have done. That's the basis of judgment. Not the whole story, we need to see more, but that is the basis on which we're judged. Well, then Paul looks at what about, he looks at two classes of people, really, those who've had privileges and those who haven't had those privileges. Those who have advantages and those who are disadvantaged. And the privileges, of course, belong to God's people. And so he looks at those and he raises issues of having the law of God. He deals with that in verse 17 onwards. Having circumcision, verse 25 onwards. And being One of God's chosen people, chapter 3, verse 1, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Three issues, the law of God, circumcision, and the chosen people. Now, of course, we can sit here and say, well, none of those issues are particularly relevant to us because we don't belong under the old covenant and we're not Jews. Well, then let's bring it up to date and have three comparable issues. What about these privileges, having the Bible baptism, and church membership. Great privileges, great advantages. How do they affect judgment? Well, let's look at how Paul handles that. Verse 17, he looks at this matter of the law. If you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law, brag about your relationship to God. If you know his will and approve what is superior because you're instructed by the law, convince you're a guide for the blind, and so on. He's speaking there about this massive privilege of knowing that God has spoken. God has spoken. We're not left 
just to come up with our own ideas. We're not left to come up with our own theories. God has spoken. The Jews had the law of God. We have the word of God, the law of the old covenant and the new covenant. The, having God's law. And they knew that this was precious. It says in the NIV, you brag about your relationship to God. The word brag has a kind of not pleasant feel to it. I don't like to say it, but the ESV is a better translation here. It has the word boasting, and even that can have a bad sense, but it's talking here about an understanding of privilege and being thrilled with that privilege. Just delighting in God. The way Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's boasting about the gospel. It's a good boast that God has revealed things. If you, if you rely on the law and, and glory in your relationship with God, it's a privileged position. God has spoken, and they know God has spoken, and they know that God, having God's law has given them a responsibility towards other people, a guide for the blind, a light for those in the dark, and so on. That was God's intention for Israel. He spoke to them, they had his word, and then they were supposed to reveal that to other nations. If you look in the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 42 and verse 6, There, God says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand, and I will keep you and and will make you to be a covenant for the people, a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes of the blind and free captives from prison and release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Again, in chapter 49 and verse 6. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Privileged position. They've got God's word. Now, they've got a mission to the ends of the earth to, to show people what God has said by declaring it and living it. And that was precisely where things went wrong. Because they gloried in this book. They just didn't do it. And so, they've lost all excuses. God has spoken. They know what God is saying. But actually, having this book adds to their guilt, makes them that much more responsible. And, verse 24 God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. They, they're supposed to be living by a standard that they don't live by. The nations see that. And the nations speak against their God because of how they're living. So great privilege is not going to help them on the day of judgment. For us, we have the Bible. Again, immense privilege. We know what God God promises, we know what God requires, it's all here. But that doesn't guarantee, well then, we'll be fine on the day of judgment, we know the truth. No, it's doing it that Paul keeps insisting. It's knowing it, believing it, and doing it that matters. And indeed, the same effect is there as it was for Israel. And it could even be said, God's name 
is blasphemed among the nations because of the church. You just hear what people say. They don't know much about Christianity. But they do say, load of hypocrites. Why do they say that? Well, because Christians have claimed to believe things that they don't then do. They've claimed to have values that they don't then live. And people in the workplace, people out there in the world, they see people who are supposed to be Christians, and they see a lifestyle that doesn't match up with the concept. And so God's name gets blasphemed among the nations because of the church. Well, what about circumcision? Verse 25, circumcision has value. Paul says, if you observe the law, circumcision, again, great privilege. What it is the right that initiated into Jewishness, the covenant sign. And, and so they, they would speak about the circumcised, the uncircumcised. The uncircumcised, those who are right outside. The covenant sign, the sign of belonging to God. Surely that puts you in a special place. You know, if you play Monopoly, there's always the danger in Monopoly that you can end up in jail. But there is a get-out-of-jail-free card. If you get that card, you put it on one side, and then you know that when you say, go to jail, go immediately to jail, don't pass go, don't collect 200 or whatever, you've got your get-out-of-jail-free card. The Jews kind of regarded circumcision as a get-out-of-jail-free card. They had circumcision. And therefore, on the Day of Judgment, they present the card. Surely, they are God's special people. Because of that, they will be safe. And, and, and they valued it immensely. Paul then is saying something massively startling and controversial. He says, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you've become as though you had not been circumcised. It guarantees nothing. God is looking at our actions, and judgment will be according to what you have done. And circumcision doesn't cover anything. Likewise for us, baptism. Baptism is our initiation we come into the people of God. When we're baptized, we say, the life I used to live, I leave, leave behind me. I'm baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. My life has been claimed by God. I now belong to Him. But baptism, without actions that follow, doesn't actually guarantee anything. Remember what Paul says in just a couple of chapters further on in, in chapter 6. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Being baptized means a whole change of lifestyle. Baptism is saying goodbye to one lifestyle and it's an entrance into another. If we don't live that lifestyle... Baptism doesn't achieve anything at all. doesn't do anything. Down through the ages, there are people who thought to be baptized guarantees your place in heaven. And so some superstitiously 
would want to baptize a baby as soon as it's born to guarantee if anything goes wrong, it'll be in heaven. Baptism guarantees your place in heaven. No, 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 no. Just as circumcision didn't, neither will baptism. It's what we do. It's the lifestyle that we live that God will judge. The third thing that they could look at was Jewishness. Being a member of God's chosen people, surely that makes a difference. You see what God says about his people back in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6. God says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Now surely, that makes a difference. The Lord has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Then surely, to be part of this people makes you secure. To belong to them means you're chosen by God. You've passed the test, as it were. There is nothing to fear on the day of judgment. You know that you've been chosen by God. Startlingly again, Paul contradicts that. And he says, it's not enough. Verse 28, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly. A man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. It's a matter of the heart, by the spirit. It's not anything that we, it's not who we belong to, it's not rights we've, we've observed, it's not privileges, it, it's, it's a change of heart that leads to a change of life. Likewise for us, church membership. They were speaking on Friday evening about what that means. What it means to be part of the church. Won't reiterate all of that. We've said it. But the church is absolutely vital. The church is crucial. The church is the bride of Christ. And when Jesus comes, he's coming for his bride. But church membership doesn't guarantee a place in heaven. Church membership, just having your name on a list, doesn't mean anything unless it's inward, unless it's a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Now, we can join the church. We can sign the little statement. We have it in our commitment course. There's a statement at the end where you express your commitment. Sign that. Well, you sign that because we have to sign it to join the church. What about your heart? What about your spirit towards God? No, church membership doesn't guarantee anything. It's a matter of what we do. Well, then what about this second big question? What about people who have never heard? What about people who are devout followers of another faith? What will happen to those who have never heard the gospel? We've seen that actually hearing God's word doesn't guarantee anything. Assenting to God's word through baptism and church membership doesn't actually guarantee anything. 
in and of itself. And then what about those who never had those privileges? Well, a common answer that is given, this is the normal answer that you hear people trotting out, is that, well, on that final day, people will be judged according to their lights. That's the expression that people use. They didn't maybe have the light of the gospel, but whatever light they did have, that will be the basis on which they are judged. And some people even develop that a little bit further. This idea has always been around, but it's getting popular again. That actually, and just hear me, this is not true, but this is what people sometimes say, that the work of Christ on the cross is sufficient to cover everyone and will cover everyone whether they have heard it and believed it or not and so everyone who is in heaven will be there because of the cross of Christ even though they never heard about it and therefore never believed it and so the devout Muslim, Hindu Buddhist convinced atheist whatever, will be there ultimately because of the cross of Christ, because the death of Christ is sufficient for all. That's a popular idea. One has to say, if that were true, there's absolutely no incentive to go and preach the gospel to anyone, but that's another matter. What does Paul say about this? What about people who have never heard? People often base some of these arguments loosely on what Paul says here in chapter 2, verse 14. When Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. So what is said on that is that, well, there are two ways, really. You can have the word of God, but if you haven't got the word of God, never heard the word of God, your conscience is sufficient. Have you obeyed your conscience, lived by your conscience? That will be enough. But some people will be judged simply on that basis. It is said. Now look at what Paul is actually saying here. First of all, he says, those who don't have the law, it's not, he doesn't say they've got the law already in their hearts. He says, they have the requirements of the law written on their hearts. In other words, some of the behavior that the law leads to, they know about. And so, people who have never heard anything about the Bible, maybe people who really have not, ever encountered civilization, people in the remotest parts of the world that never been evangelized, never, uh, civilization has ever reached to them. They've got a moral code. They know. Within their culture, you don't just kill people. You don't just steal. You know, they're, they're, some of the requirements of the law are there. It's part of their code. It's the way they live. And that's what Paul is saying, that there is a general code everywhere. Is he saying that that is sufficient to save? No, what he's saying is, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience is bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. People whose who haven't offended the law of God, but they have offended their own conscience, and everyone has, will perish apart from the law. 
He's not saying that there are two ways. He's saying even those who just live by conscience, that condemns them. Their conscience condemns them because no one lives up to the standard that they're supposed to live to. Indeed, he concludes the whole thing in chapter 3, verse 20, to say no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Through the law, we become conscious of sin. Every mouth will be silenced. We need to see the context here. In this chapter, Paul isn't speaking about how to be saved. He is speaking about why we need to be saved. He's not speaking about different routes through which people can be saved. He's saying everybody needs to be saved. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Whether you're a Jew having the law of God and all those privileges, or you're right outside having none of those privileges, Everybody needs the gospel. Everybody needs to know about Jesus. So he concludes in in chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one, verse 10 of chapter 3. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. There is no one who does good, and so on. That is the point. No one is righteous, And indeed, in chapter 3, verse 20, we've seen uh, through the law we become conscious of sin. And he goes on to say, all, verse 23, all have sinned. That's the predicament. Everyone is guilty, whether they've got religious privileges or whether they've not got any. All have sinned. Universal need and a unique answer, and that is Jesus. There are two classes of people in the world and only two there are those who are saved through believing in Jesus and there are those who are lost they are the two stark categories those who are saved through believing in Jesus and those who are lost only Jesus can save because the the fact is everybody has sinned That's the point he's making. Those who have, those who have been part of Israel, who had the law, circumcision, part of the chosen people, they've failed, they've sinned. What? They crucified God's Son. But individually, all have sinned. Those who don't have the law, who just live according to their lights, all go against their conscience, all do things they know they shouldn't do, and judgment will be according to what we have done. We come before God with hands filthed through what we've done. The amazing thing is, through the Lord Jesus Christ, we're able to do what many of us have been doing this morning, doing what the Bible calls lifting up holy hands. How can you lift up holy hands when your hands are filthed through sin? Jesus. Jesus who took Our place took our guilt, punished for us, so that righteousness is given to us. That's the point he's making. Righteousness from God. No one's got any of their own. Everyone has sinned. Some regard themselves as having sinned terribly. Others just about admit it. But whatever our estimation of ourselves, we're filthy. 
And everyone, all nations, all people must hear the gospel. There's no alternative way to be saved. All nations, all people must believe the gospel, must respond to the gospel. Because outside of Christ, there is no salvation. That's the point he's making. There is no alternative route. There's no way lesser route for those who have never heard. No, judgment is according to what we've done. And on that basis, we are all guilty. No one, no one dare come before God. All have sinned. But the good news, a Savior who we all need, we all need, And all out there need. That's the great imperative that is given to the church. That is what energizes Paul. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm eager to preach the gospel. He sees a world, he sees the two categories. Either those who are in Christ or those who are lost. And he wants to make sure he's raiding that category. Those who are lost, cause them to hear about Jesus so that they can be saved. Let's value our salvation. Let's not dilute it as if there's some alternative route through and, and, and we're saved because of anything other than Jesus. It's Jesus alone who saves. You're not saved through being a member of the church. You're not saved through being baptized. You're not saved because you've got a Bible. You are saved by believing in the one this book speaks of, committing your life to him, and then living with him. That's the only way to be saved. And those who do that will be saved. No fear of judgment. No terror of the last day. But judgment fallen on Jesus. All our sin covered. The hard drive wiped. We're free from sin.